Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome to the window. So I'm going to start with an apology. This is Dr. Joanna Williamson, of course, and I'm with my co-host, Dr. Iris Cooper. And, and a bad way to start the show is with an apology, but that's what I'm going to do. So on last Saturday, which was June 12th, I happily and proudly announced that it was Juneteenth. And as it turns out, that was not the case at all. Okay, so I'm going to pause for just a moment so we can take care of a few technical issues. I think we're back again live. Okay, this is Dr. Joanna Williams, and I'm with my co-host, Dr. Iris Cooper, and we're now on the window. Well, I want to talk about my father, and we are going to talk about Father's Day on this Father's Day weekend. We're going to start briefly, though, by allowing me to correct an error I made on last week's show. Okie dokie. So last week, I proudly announced that it was Juneteenth. And it was not. It was actually Saturday, June 12th. Today is Juneteenth. So I want to assure our listeners that among my cognitive failings was not thinking that Juneteenth was on June 12th. Rather, and I'll blame the pandemic on this since we've been blaming the pandemic on a lot of things in the last year. During the last year, have you kind of lost track of what time of day it is and what day of the week it is. So last week, I just totally lost track of what day of the month it is. And so I announced last week was Juneteenth, but it's this Saturday, of course. And what a Juneteenth it is since just within the past 24, 48 hours, Juneteenth was declared a national holiday. So even though in pockets of the country we've been celebrating this Independence Day, Independence Day from slavery, or at least when the word spread throughout the country among the enslaved, that we were free, or as one of my friends said this week, we were free-ish. For the first time, there's national recognition in the form of a paid holiday, which is a big deal. A paid federal holiday means that the lawmakers and a surprising number and mix of lawmakers saw fit to add to the list of paid holidays one that commemorates us. So we celebrate that as the accomplishment that it is. And we put an asterisk on that as the concern that it is. Um, there are um, historians who have pointed to the fact that there have been concessions made to us as a race that are significant but shouldn't overshadow the fact that in numerous ways we are still enslaved. And so we have voting rights issues that are up in the air that we've talked about on this show, Dr. I. We have new concerns about our history, even as we celebrate Juneteenth as being an integral part of our history. There are movements underway to minimize the extent to which our history is taught. The truth. And we're going to talk about that on next week's show. Mm -hmm. So for right now, happy Juneteenth to everyone, not just those of us whose ancestors were personally affected, but with this new national holiday stature happy juneteenth to everyone celebrate in some way we will talk more about this next week as we talk overall about celebrating our history and not letting that be forgotten and our history can't be celebrated without thinking about our forefathers and our history can't be celebrated without thinking about the future as well so today 
in honor of Father's Day, we're going to talk about our forefathers, and literally for Dr. I and I, our fathers, and then we're going to talk about this thing called fatherhood with a very special, very qualified guest to join us today. But happy Father's Day weekend to you, Dr. I. Oh my gosh, it is, it is, because just like you, I was blessed with a 24-7 dad, and he wasn't perfect, but doggone it, he tried every day. And I'm just going to share one anecdote that I think um, illustrates his commitment to to me. Even though there were two other children, I'm just going to talk about his commitment to me. Um, when I was a little girl, I was kind of uh, um, outspoken. I can't imagine. Yes. Um, I was the baby, and I think my father kind of thought I was special. But he worked uh, a, a, a job as a chauffeur, and then he would come home. And then he had a catering business uh, with some other uh, black gentlemen. Um, and he'd have to eat very quickly and then jump into his, his business catering outfit and leave and so I came in one day and I was jumping around he was trying to eat and get out of the house very quickly and I knocked over his dinner on his catering outfit Uh -uh. well needless to say he went off and I was horrified I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. I went through all of the, the the apologies I knew how to do at eight years old. And he stormed upstairs and had to change his clothes and everything. And I was just torn apart. The next morning, my father came in to wake me up for school and apologized to me. Wow. He woke me up and it looked like there were tears in his eyes. And he said, Iris, he said, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. He said, daddy was just running late, had a lot on his mind and he took it out on you and he shouldn't have. And he apologized to me. And even to this day, I can see those tears in his eyes. So real men do cry. And that says a lot about him as not just a father, but as a human being. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes uh, we forget and our children forget that first and foremost, we are human beings. Mm -hmm. And so, as you said, and not perfect, that we're far from being perfect. Um, My dad, I grew up in a household such that I didn't realize until I was an adult and out in the world, the extent to which other children grew up in dysfunction and trauma because my world was so far removed from that. And um, I just can't find enough great things to say about my childhood. My dad was, um, he was a gentle man. He was a gentleman. He was funny. He was corny. He was hardworking. I see so much of him and his work ethic now in my son. And I could go on and on with stories like you have, just great, wonderful memories. What I remember most, though, is that in his final years, I had the privilege of being his caregiver. And I use that word privilege. I use that word honor, not lightly. I was always close to my dad, but my two older sisters were the the daddy's girls and I was the mama's girl. So it was somewhat ironic that I was the one left behind to care for my dad. 
And um, I remember, for those of you who are caregivers, it's hard work. And sometimes you just get caught up in the day-to-day grind of it. But I remember someone saying to me, you're doing God's work now. And so looking back, my, my dad is now going on to glory with my mom, but looking back, at that very special time that I got to know him, I do realize that that was God's handiwork. And and I learned to see caregiving and our aging parents as being human beings who oftentimes were, were fighting for their dignity and how we not only got to share with them all the great memories, but we got to help them shape their todays and their futures by reminding them that even though that machine called our body was breaking down, that their spirits and their souls were just as strong as ever. So, so those are our memories. Those are our reflections through the window as it relates to Father's Day. Mm-hmm. It's impossible, of course, to talk about fathers without talking about men and men, of course, who started out as boys and their fatherhood is just a, a role that they have hopefully chosen, but sometimes just been thrust into in our society. And especially for those of us who are African-Americans, and I would say even more so for those of us who are women, we have questions. And sometimes society answers those questions for us as it relates to black men. So we decided, as we look through the window today, this Father's Day weekend, not to allow that to happen, not to let society impact our view of our men and the love they bring to us and the love that we want to give to them in spite of or because of the unique human beings they are. And so we are so honored today to have a guest who specializes, who not only devotes his life to being a man and a father and a son, but also in terms of his occupation. He is a a specialist and he specializes in working with black boys and men. I'm going to allow him first to introduce himself and tell you what it is he does and his background that's prepared him for that. And then we have lots and lots of questions today for for Jewel Wood. So Jewel, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Sure. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Cooper. Good morning, Dr. Good Williams. Morning. It's, it's, good morning. It thank is a you. pleasure. It is a pleasure. It is a pleasure. Um, <laughs> first of all, let me just comment on your, your stories. I, I appreciate that. Um, I'll share with you that I did not have the type of relationship that you ladies had with your father. But as I tell men, even though I did not have a relationship with my father, he made me into the father that I am today, um, which is, you know, partly ironic, but in many ways, clinically, what most of us do, we look through the lens of uh, parenting through the, the lens of a child. And sometimes we determine based upon that lens, you know, what we want to be and what we don't want to be. So I love the ideas uh, of the, the sort of stories that you ladies have shared and, and pray to God that my daughters will have uh, as fond memories as you do. Uh, so Dr. Williamson, just to go back to, to uh, your, your introduction, I appreciate, uh, you know, sort of opening up. Specialist is one term. Um, so my name is Jewel Woods. I'm the founder and clinical director of Male Behavioral Health. Uh, Male Behavioral Health is an outpatient uh, mental health practice that specializes uh, in emotional behavioral and uh, mental health needs of men and boys. Uh, we currently have a couple offices uh, here in uh, Gahanna, also recently opened up two offices in Toledo, Ohio. I have been fascinated and frightened by uh, the link between masculinity and mental health uh, for the majority of my adult life, probably before then, and sort of dedicated in terms of being a sort of specialist uh, to being the best sort of clinician I can and sort of developing a field around men and mental health for about the last 10 years or so. 
Um, I'm happy to sort of talk about, you know, fatherhood in a sort of broad way to address the specific questions that you sent me. But I will say that just in terms of who I am and the practice that I'm sort of uh, proud to be connected with and helping to build, it is around the whole idea of how can clinicians, educators, and anyone who, you know, is involved in the lives of men and boys have the types of sort of gender competencies to work ethically and effectively with that population. So that's the work that I, I do, and I'm, I'm happy to talk uh, more about that throughout the, the conversation. And what we really want to do today is is be really good listeners and um, and ask you to share with our audience some of your major findings and some of your major recommendations. I will say first that I, I read some articles that suggest if, if we believe everything we hear that that black men are disproportionately absent from their families, absent from their homes. There have been some challenges of those statistics saying that the whole way that we look at families and do measurements in our society might be flawed. But but let's start with that assumption that there is growth that's wanted and needed in our community as it relates to the role of fathers. Talk to us, if you will, about what your findings show and what some of your major conclusions are. It's a, it's a wonderful question. Um, I'll talk about it in a couple of different ways, if you don't mind. Sure. First of all, I, I'll have uh, your sort of listeners uh, look to a, uh, a fairly known, but perhaps you know, outside of the, the, the academic circles, perhaps not uh, as well known, uh, research data finding set called Fragile Families. And Fragile Families, I think it started out at Columbia, uh, was based upon the idea of trying to not only sort of you know, deal with what you just described as sort of you know, demographics, which uh, reflect the uh, disproportionate rates of uh, single-parent households, but really to sort of understand the sort of mechanisms behind that. And what they did, and I think this is Garfinkel and, and his, his, his folks uh, uh, in the social work department there, uh, found uh, and they sort of studied, uh, you know, families, particularly at the time of birth, to be able to figure out exactly what uh, these young folks, often young folks, I think the, the, the initial wave was between 18 and 25, perhaps even a little younger, but the whole point was to actually figure out from the very get-go whether or not the idea of family was present, uh, you know, uh, not just present, I mean, particularly something that those families were committed to, and especially for, for men. And so they, they got that data by, I think, interviewing the folks like, uh, you know, during the course of the relationship. But I think the initial sort of point of context actually happened uh, during the birth of the child to actually see, you know, who was there, who showed up. And what, you, what they found was, despite the fact, um, and I'll answer your question, so absolutely there's a disproportionate number of uh, single-parent households in African-American community. A lot of those you know, have to do with a lot of sort of structural issues that we can talk about. But the real question becomes, are those really the sort of intentions and what black families, black men want? And the answer from that uh, research study suggested, uh, no, that these were not just booty calls, for lack of a better words, that when... Uh, young folks were having children that, you know, aspirationally speaking, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Williamson, if you ask those young African-American males, you know, is it your intent? Would you love to be involved? Do you see yourself as being father? The answer to all those sort of questions was affirmative. But of course, you know, uh, there were a number of different sort of factors uh, that sort of ended up mediating against that. And it ended up uh, being the case that, you know, uh, fathers and families had sort of fractured uh, relationships over time. So it's important to say, uh, yes, there is, you know, no doubt uh, uh, this sort of demographic reality 
where too many uh, black children are being raised in single-parent households, uh, too many fathers, uh, both volitionally and uh, not involuntarily, are not in the lives of their children. But it is also important to uh, to talk about, you know, you know why that happens, and, and particularly what were some of the intentions uh, when it comes to sort of starting a family from the very get-go. Does that, uh, in some way, sort of? And, yes, it does. So, so if in fact someone says at the birth of their child, or maybe even at the conception of their child, I really want to be a parent, I really want to be a father, and some Correct. of them go on to do that in their imperfect way, what happens to those who don't step up to the role? What's the problem? You know, uh, being black in America is part of it. You know, some of that is the whole uh, structural piece that we can talk about. Um, here's what I would say, just in terms of, you know, the way in which, you know, fatherhood, from my sort of experience, and more talking about sort of clinical interactions with men, not just the sort of data. Uh, one of the things that you uh, see, uh, and again, uh, I apologize, I, um, I didn't ask you um, uh, about your uh, status. I think, uh, Dr. Williamson, I heard you mention uh, that you have a child. Uh, Dr. Cooper, do you have children? And we are both sing we're single moms, yes. And we okay. are single well, moms, and, and we have moms. lots of questions for you in that regard, too. So <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, we're not I'm, biased. I'm, I'm we're not Army? biased. We're not biased. Oh, we're no, no, totally no. objective. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Of course. I love of course. black men. Of course. No, no, no. And of course, and I was only, I only asked that to just simply, you know, rely on the fact that we all, you know, especially as adults, know that parenting goes through its own sort of life course, Right. Uh, the, ch the children that we see at age eight is different than the, the one we see at age 18 and different than the, the one we see at age 28. And so uh, to, to answer this sort of question about what sort of happens, particularly with men uh, who don't end up being there, uh, a lot of that has to do with the, the extent to which they're able to, to sort of connect at those different sort of points. And obviously, you know, the reasons for why they don't. There are a myriad of reasons uh, why African-American men are not actively involved um, in their, ch their children's lives. Um, I literally just ran a fatherhood um, session uh, for a group of brothers, maybe it was 40, um, and just, you know, start off with the you know, first question about, you know, how many of you uh, have fathers that are alive or not? About half did, half did not. You know, I, then the second question was, you know, how many of you, you know, have a relationship? A half did, half did not. For me, the, the, the question, uh, you know, then the sort of discussion about why that was, and, you know, the, just to, to, to go to some of those sort of variables, some of it had to do with, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, uh, those fathers, uh, these were adults now, made conscious decisions not to be a part of their father's lives because of the lifestyles that their father had, which, you know, simply says that there are a lot of men, based upon some of, you know, their situations, end up, you know, engaging in behavioral uh, or lifestyles that, you know, uh, tend to get them, in, you know, caught up in a number of different sort of things, uh, certainly incarceration, um, some of them um, talked about the fact that they didn't have relationships with their fathers because of the fractured relationship between them and uh, their mothers. Uh, I should point out something that you probably both know is that it's difficult to be any type of parent if you don't have a relationship with the other, whether it be a mother or father. Uh, the, the relationships uh, between your children is typically mediated by uh, the strength of that relationship. And for fathers that are quote-unquote non-residential, so much of their relationship with their children is based upon the relationship they have with mothers. And that is in no way, for example, saying that women are responsible for it. But, you know, men in reflecting on this question would say, look, part of the reason why I don't have a you know, relationship with my father is because my father had a real bad relationship with my mother. 
Um, and again, not necessarily an excuse, but just as a sort of variable to say that. And then there's just the other sort of piece about, uh, for, for some men, where fatherhood, uh, and I, I uh, ladies, uh, make a distinction between being a father versus a dad. Uh, my children never call me father. They call me daddy uh, or dad. Uh, that has to do with the, the inertia of a relationship. And if I hear some music in the background, are we about to go to break? <laughs> we are about to go to break, but okay. you said so much I didn't want to stop you. We are really oh. going to dig very deeply into what you've talked mm-hmm. about when we come back in just a few minutes on The Window. So we're back on The Window on this Juneteenth weekend. And most importantly for our guest today on this Father's Day weekend, we are honored to have with us Jewel Woods, who has a lot of credentials behind his name. That means that he is well-trained and well-researched and very proficient in dealing with black men and boys in a clinical way as a social worker. Before we pick up where he left off, I'm going to go ahead and be the bad person here today, as I often am. And before we went to break, um, Jewel was making a few comments that included mention of women, and he was trying so hard I believe to be gentlemanly about it and and Dr. Iyer and I are sitting here with with um, indescribable body language so I'm going to say a few <laughs> things and, and I'm just going to get this out of the way so first to to men and women th- this is me this is my untrained unprofessional self for men and women there are lots of good reasons to bring children into the world and there are lots of bad reasons to bring children into the world so it, if you just look at yourself and go you know maybe I am not emotionally, financially, whatever, ready to have a child yet. You might want to consider not doing it yet. And for those of us who look at people, especially married couples, and say, when are you going to have children? Well, maybe that's none of our business. Maybe they're just not ready to take that on yet. For those of us who find ourselves as parents, and perhaps we have some issues that we should own, then maybe we should step up to those issues and try to be healthier human beings as we parent our children. And for those of us who are women, or even men, who don't have great relationships with the other parent, and that's actually what Jewel was talking to us about before we went to break, there might be some real good reasons why we try to keep the other parent from playing a predominant role in the child's life. If there's such a level of dysfunctionality that they're hurting the child and refuse to get help, maybe that's a good reason. But if the reason is because I really don't love you anymore, I don't like you anymore, I don't like the fact that you cheated on me, I don't like the fact that you have another woman, well, that really doesn't have a lot to do with that person's ability to be a good parent. And so you love your child even if you don't love your mate anymore. In that situation, could you find it in your heart? And that's real hard to do, to allow that child to have a great relationship with each parent. Okay, Joe, was that okay? Did I do okay with that? I think you did perfect. And, and please, uh, I'm, I'm interested in having you give voice to uh, to the body language. And, and all I wanted to say, just as a sort of covering statement, is that for fathers and, and for mothers, you know, in general, and it's interesting, uh, there's a sort of, uh, obviously a fundamental difference, but when we're talking about relationships, uh, there's structural, you know, social, uh, and other sort of contexts in which those relationships happen. And if it's not through the quote-unquote institution of marriage or some sort of legal documentation, or if it's not just through the sort of, you know, regular sort of interactions, you know, one would have with one child, the real question becomes how are those interactions mediated? And it typically is mediated through adults. 
And that's why, to your point, and I appreciate those sort of comments, it becomes really important for, you know, on one hand, people to just, you know, and I can talk about this sort of discourse and politics around uh, sort of fatherhood movement, uh, because some people think that one can sort of parent sort of independent of the other person, and there's, you know, some sort of, you know, interesting sort of findings around that. But the reality is either one has this sort of idea that I'm going to be a, a parent no matter what, uh, I'm going to be a father, you know, no matter what, or one really simply understands that to be, you know, uh, effective uh, and to raise a child, you know, to the extent to which one can in a, uh, in a healthy way, having some level of sort of, you know, civility uh, or interaction with this other parent becomes important. And uh, the issue with uh, fathers, and it's not just specific to African-American men, and I, I do want to make the point, uh, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Williamson, that I do see uh, more than just African-American men. Because to my knowledge, I love what you, you talked about before. You said they're human beings and then they're fathers. The, the mediating thing for men is, is manhood and masculinity. Uh, oftentimes it's inverted. They're men first, human beings second, and then whatever else uh, that they, you know, whatever role that they tend to play. Because to my knowledge, you know, manhood and ideas about masculinity are just that sort of pervasive. So to go back to this whole idea about uh, being a father and what sort of mediates and sometimes uh, uh, tarnishes a relationship some guys if they don't have any relationship with the woman then they choose not to have any relationship with their children and it's sad and that's why you see so many men having better relationships with their girlfriend's children than they do their own because their real commitment is to that sort of relationship uh with the woman so you know there's a number of different sort of ways to talk about it uh, i love what you just said uh earlier i think i experienced a little bit different I think that every child that, you know, uh, one has, that there's, you know, uh, an opportunity to, for parents to be present. And so the question uh, that I have to work through uh, with men and their sons, because they end up, in particular, end up being such a fractured relationship between men as men, but also, uh, and I love the way in which you talked about your relationship with your father, is how do you actually regain and restore those relationships when they end up being fractured? Um, oftentimes the argument that I make with men is it is so uh, much easier to draw upon relationships when they put that time in initially. So, for example, you know, if you, 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 you know, no man wants to be, you know, say, you know, go to you, that's your dad and you know, that sort of thing. Over time when there's these sort of gaps, and I can, you know, talk about it in, in other sort of crime populations, like, you know, populations of folks with addiction or populations of, of men who, for example, incarcerated, where they literally have, you know, big gaps of time between them and their children, there's a number of different sort of things that they have to sort of work through. We all know, for example, that parenting through guilt is a difficult thing. Uh, but for men, for example, who just don't start off having any relationship with their children, it just becomes harder to have a relationship with that child later on. And so starting off, you know, uh, early in the process is, you know, uh, is always easier uh, from my experience uh, professionally and personally so that there's a sort of personal relationship that men are able to sort of draw upon later. But then beyond that, there's, you know, all the other things that we can imagine that go into parenting that kind of uh, contributes to it. It's a relationship, uh, you know, uh, dependent upon, you know, class does matter. Um, you know, people have a number of different sort of barriers when it comes to so-called meeting their uh, responsibilities, and those responsibilities trump other ideas about parenthood. So a guy feels as if he can't financially, you know, pay bills and stuff, then why have a relationship? So, you know, we can talk about it in any number of, of ways, but the point is to simply highlight the structural and social and cultural, whatever sort of context in which those relationships uh, happen, become really, really important for the, for the men, since if we're talking about them, 
to have some sort of idea of that and some sort of perspective on it. Because if not, you know, the, the natural inertia is, you know, what's harder to do, one does less often. And so over time, it becomes easier not to talk to your kid, not to check in up on your kid. It becomes easier not to have that argument about, you know, where were you supposed to be? And that inertia, you know, translates into days and, you know, months and years. And then we end up having uh, situations where uh, it's not just single-parent households. It really is a sort of an abandonment of children by the men who fathered them. I have um, a question that kind of goes into a different um, thought process. Um, Both Dr. Joe and I are baby boomers. And our parents were married for life. Mm. Um, Mm. 50 plus years when my father died. And Mm. I'm sure that they were not on the same page for 50 Mm. years. Mm. Now, fast forward, uh, here we are as, you know, 21st century people, and, and especially for women, our role has deliberately changed since our parents got married. The woman in the home cooking and cleaning and waiting for the husband to come home at five o'clock is no more. And in our generation, we went to school. We had careers just like our spouses and we had children and we were juggling all these different identities at the same time. Yet sometimes the, 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 the work of a family was not always evenly distributed. Yes. Um, and so that caused friction yes. between yes. the two roles. Um, and so I think now in the current generation, marriage for 50 years isn't even a discussion. We, the, getting married for life <laughs> isn't even yeah. thought about as a goal. Um, and and as a result of that, children grow up not even today thinking that mom and dad are supposed to be together. What do you have to say about that? I so you I don't know if you, you know, of course you are because you're both brilliant. You've heard of the term starter marriages, right? Um, just like um, everything no. else. In no, this we haven't. Culture. Oh, you haven't. No. <laughs> yeah. So starter marriages is you know a part of this sort of capitalist. Uh, you know, uh, liberal democracy, you know, new concept where, you know, uh, forget sort of cohabiting, you know, one can just, you know, get married and figure out, you know, what things work and what don't work. And then, you know, you can just automatically assume that, uh, you know, you'll have another one. So just the concept itself just goes back to your point. Uh, So uh, there's a number of different sort of ways in which to talk about that. And it's important precisely because um, and it's not just the, the, the baby boomer generation. You know, the point that we know from African-American, you know, intellectual life, you know, climbing Jacobs later is that, um, you know, after slavery, you know, black men walked, you know, from, you know, states looking for their, for their children and their families. And so the idea of, and the cultural idea of uh, family and fatherhood uh, was something that uh, has been strong and really only, we only started to see the sort of transition in sort of post-60s. Um, and so what you're speaking to in terms of your, your family's uh, sort of history is, I'm just saying, is the sort of natural trajectory of all aspects of American life. I'll talk about some sort of class distinctions, which are important, but that was the story of African-American life, that slavery did not, you know, destroy 
you know, the sort of bonds that, you know, um, our ancestors had thinking about their sort of commitment, not just to their children, but to each other. Uh, but there was something to happen, right, during the course of integration in particular, and this uh, process of becoming American where some of these types of bonds and, and relationships became, you know, perhaps less less dominant. And I think, you know, as you just sort of alluded to, this particular generation experiences it a little bit differently. Again, I think that, you know, uh, perhaps you two are, are, are young enough to remember, and so I would just say, for example, if one is talking about the sort of politics of fatherlessness, there has been this whole idea of the black matriarchy. I mean, there's this whole idea of the welfare state. I mean, there's a, a, a number of different sort of arguments as to how, you know, this thing happened. You know, one is uh, black women made me do it because they're so strong and all that sort of nonsense. The other one was that the welfare state, you know, didn't allow black men to be in the household. Perhaps you remember the movie of, was it Claudine or Claudette, where the brother was a Jamar Jones. Diane you know, Carroll. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, jumped into the closet, you know, because the social worker was looking for him. Mm -hmm. um, so that, and then if you take in, you know, just presumably what has happened to, uh, with some experiences of an assault of African-American men in the criminal justice system, uh, and, you know, incredible rates of incarceration, there becomes a way of talking about, you know, how this sort of father absence has happened structurally. Culturally, what you just were alluding to becomes, you know, the, the real sort of question, you know, whether or not, you know, our young folks even think about uh, sort of commitment to each other in a way that's lasting the way in which you talked about. And what I would say is, you know, the data set that I just mentioned, you know, before the Fragile Families doesn't, you know, seems to suggest at least initially that they do. Again, the question becomes what happens so it does not allow itself. And that's the real sort of question of sort of research and, and, and public policy. But that when people do get married and when they see their child, I'm just, you know, for, as a father, unless one is a sociopath, you know, uh, clinically it becomes difficult to think that there's not an emotional connection to one's child. Um, now, there's, you know, thing about hypersexuality and, you know, sex and all that sort of stuff. But the sort of product of having a child who, you know, has needs, oftentimes looks like somebody, you know, all that sort of stuff, like they spit them out, all those are real things that simply, you know, uh, just are not, you know, uh, are, uh, not to be sort of uh, minimized. The question becomes, you know, uh, what happens? And I should just say, you know, again, uh, for me, it's the question when I get a, a whether it be a, a father who's dealing with his sort of anger that, you know, he recognizes now in his children or, or so a, a family, a, a, a husband and a wife who's been married for 30 years, and trying to figure out now that they don't have any sort of kids in the household, how they can actually sort of, you know, love each other again. The question is, for, for me clinically is how do you actually maintain those uh, things once they occur? And I would just simply say, um, you know, uh, to your question about what happens over time where we might be thinking that young folks might not even have any sort of intentions about it, that's not necessarily, you know, I, I don't think how it, it starts, even though, for example, some of the research, you know, is coming up with terms like, you know, starter marriages, and that just, you know, perhaps speaks to a different sort of class context. But most people, when they have children, uh, and certainly from the fathers that I get, are not thinking of themselves as, you know, as, as having, you know, only responsibilities and no opportunities to be a part of a child's life. The only question that we have to pay attention to is how do we support them along the way, uh, and particularly when it comes to some of the skills. And, and the, Dr. Cooper, I, I love the story that you just shared, um, the initial story you shared about your father um, asking, apologizing, and perhaps, uh, you know, asking for forgiveness in that moment as well. Uh, all, you know, parents recognize that patience and forgiveness and God's grace 
is something that they have, you know, have to ask for because we know, uh, you know, uh, that we're not perfect. And that oftentimes, and I'll sh- share this, you know, uh, with you, this whole reality of being a professional black woman and this whole idea of a marriageable male uh, context and what you were speaking to, Dr. Williamson, where some men um, have conservative ideas uh, about what women's role should be when the women in their lives are doing more financially and professionally than they are. That ends up causing tremendous sort of conflict. Uh, one researcher, uh, Orlando Patterson, I don't know if you read him, talked about the black middle class uh, being the most conflicted class, uh, at least in terms mm-hmm. of research, because you have some of the most conservative men and some of the most progressive women. And, you know, what I have to, to, to an opportunity to, to, to deal with uh, in private practice is when you have uh, these sort of conflicts play out with uh, you know, for example, my wife is a physician. She just left. You know, she runs a, a spa along with her her partner. These are brilliant black women who invest in their sort of profession, are mothers, uh, wives, uh, and serious uh, in what they do. And for me to you know simply sort of expect to you know have you know as you sort of alluded to uh, things done uh, in a sort of traditional way is not only sort of subject to failure, but just chronic sort of uh, uh, sort of problems. So many men, you know, uh, again, just never even anticipate that, right? Never, uh, the, the sort of class issue that happening right now is that, uh-oh, there's a music again. <laughs> you're, you're fine. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion. Some of you who listen to us often know that it's very rare that we only have one guest. That's how important we think this topic is. So we want to take what we're talking about with Jewel Woods as it relates to our black men and boys and start putting that into some Father's Day kind of packages. Next steps, what our audience can actually do to try to turn the corner where improvements need to be made. We'll be right back on the window. We're back on the window on this national holiday, Juneteenth weekend. We'll talk more about our history next week. But for this week, happy Father's Day. I don't know if we, we've been talking about Father's Day, but I don't know if we blatantly just said happy Father's Day. So please enjoy your celebration with your fathers as well as let us thank the village, those who have stepped in in the place of fathers, whether you're male, female, or whatever. We appreciate you. We are back with Jewel, Jewel I'm sorry, with Jewel Woods, who's talking to us from a clinical perspective and from a a position of a person who has worked with our men and boys, especially in the African-American community, but with men and boys in general on a number of challenges they're facing, including fatherhood. So on this Father's Day weekend, we always, Jewel, like to try to leave our audience with something that they can do if they've learned something on this show. So help me as I try to paraphrase some of what we've talked about and see if you agree or disagree. First, of course, children are a product of two people who unite sperm and egg. So I don't want to get into gender issues, but we know biologically that's the case. And also soul to soul. That's right. And so if those two people work together to try to be sure that that child has a productive relationship with each one of them, regardless of how they feel about each other, then that child will likely be better off because of that. Is that correct? I absolutely I agree. And so if this Father's Day weekend, if you as a present to your 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 spouse, your mate, 
but especially your child, if there's some step you can take to try to improve that relationship with your co-parent, that would be a great Father's Day gift for everyone involved. Also, you mentioned the term sociopath. There are some people who are just extremely unhealthy, but most of us, as we've talked about today, are just human beings trying to, to be our best in an imperfect world and imperfect environments. And so there is help that people can seek if they're trying to improve their self themselves own their own issues if they're trying to improve their relationships and so i don't want the next 15 minutes of this show to come and go jewel without us stopping for a moment and having you share some information about your practice in particular and how people can get in touch with you if they choose to turn to you to say you know what i really could stand to talk to someone about myself perhaps first and then myself in the context of parenting, perhaps. How can they get in touch with you? Sure. Well, they can always thank you so much. Uh, they can always call our office at 614-360-9702. That's 614-360-9702. They can find us online at uh, mbhinc.com. That stands for Male Behavioral Health, uh, but mbhinc.com. Obviously, you can always sort of Google me, and it will kind of get you back to there. The one thing that I do want to say, Dr. Williamson, just to your sort of point, is nothing that I am I'm sharing about the sort of realities of children, you know, having two parents is meant to suggest that women, uh, particularly black women, should have any more of the burden that they're already carrying in terms of facilitating uh, relationships. Uh, I'm not making that sort of argument at all. I think that you were kind enough to, you know, sort of, you know, point out that, you know, if there's toxic relationships, then, uh, you know, people should should privilege their children above the sort of relationships. And I fully endorse that. But the other piece that I just wanted to say is it's not as if women have a sort of burden to be doing thing, anything other than what they're doing. It certainly is not the case that black women uh, you know, have a sort of burden of being both the quote unquote father and the mother. None of that is what I'm sort of suggesting. Uh, and in fact, part of, you know, the sort of issues that African-American men have um, is this sort of uh, belief uh, that, unfortunately, that their roles are stymied because of the women in life. So I, I'm not, you know, that's, that's not the sort of argument. It's just this sort of neutral piece that if people do take into consideration the needs of the children, then, you know, a sort of uh, ode to civility becomes one of the primary mechanisms to which that can occur because it becomes difficult, uh, if not impossible, um, for a father to be a good father and to be abusive or neglectful to his mother. So those are just something I would want to say um, from the very, very good go. But in terms of the sort of work, I, I would say, you know, just to put something in sort of perspective, you know, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic, and my guess is people, there's a lot of sort of excitement as well as sort of questions. But of the things that I was seeing, um, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Williamson, um, during this time, particularly for African-American men, I was around this whole question of morbidity and, and mortality. Um, the whole idea of getting sick and losing one's lives, you know, uh, for the first time for many men, you know, brought them into uh, private practice because they were dealing with the whole question of why. Yeah. I mean, and some of those questions were like, why am I even married after 30 years? And so uh, this whole search for meaning for uh, us as older parents, um, uh, I happen to, you know, you, you, you ladies know, for example, I literally just have a sort of family emergency with my father-in-law just yesterday. And what it raised for our family is the same thing with other families. I appreciate, Dr. Williamson, you mentioned about your role you played in your father's life later on when it comes to being a caretaker, is that we all have to, at some point, you know, uh, we have an opportunity, I should say, to really sort of make some sort of meaning about, you know, what this 
you know, sort of life course is about. And being in right relationships with folks, whether it be our partners, whether it be our children, whether it be even our colleagues, is part of the whole project of, you know, uh, you know, uh, oneself. And, and for me, uh, clinical work at its core is about creating a sort of space, an analytical space where people simply are trying to, you know, be their best selves. Uh, from a mental health perspective, it's a little bit more than that. It's, you know, when, you know, symptoms have, you know, arisen to the point where there's, you know, dysfunction and impairment. But in general, you know, everyone uh, has symptoms of anxiety at times. Everyone has symptoms of depression at times. It doesn't mean that they have, you know, full-blown sort of anxiety disorder or depression, full-blown clinical depression. But the idea of getting help, going back to your question, is something I would say that we should all think about because there is an opportunity and it's not just for me uh the, the process of uh of paying specific attention to our interior lives uh, and wanting to be like your father dr cooper who had the sort of self-awareness to say uh despite my situation i was going through my daughter who i love and i adore i do not want it to be in her spirit what i possibly you know uh did with my sort of anger and my sort of explosive sort of anger at that situation, right? That the children that we raise who don't have relationships with their father through no fault of their own naturally have sort of questions and concerns, and they should be told that it is not your fault, that you you are not a mistake, that your life still has meaning and purpose despite that. But oftentimes, without having some support to address those questions, to get some sort of perspective on those questions, we often, you know, there's certain anxieties, um, we start, as young folks say, start feeling some type of way about those uh, realities. So that's what private practice and working with a clinician or counselor uh, can be about. I, you know, any counselor, if they're worth their salt, should be able to deal with garden variety questions of you know anxiety, trauma, depression. The reason why I do the work that I do is I tend to believe, and I think the research bears it out, that men and boys get to those issues of anxiety and depression and trauma a little bit differently. So, um, you know, that's what it means to sort of be involved in sort of direct practice with, you know, men and boys, <laughs> to be uh, in a sort of environment where you have men in their 60s, you know, trying to, you know, figure out what it means to be a man, uh, you know, in the, you know, the latter part of their life. Uh, and so you know, it's a fascinating sort of world. Fatherhood becomes one of the most important prisms through which they answer that question, honestly. Um, and it might not surprise you at all as mothers that, you know, it is more than just duties and responsibilities. It is about one's sort of, you know, calling. And, again, when one is in a situation where, as you said, Dr. Williamson, they're fighting for the dignity, you know, with respect to their, their, their body, the body failing them, the question often comes up with, you know, was it worth it? And what do I have to, to, to show for it? And without having children or people who can, you know, um, step in, even when they don't want to, at a, at a great deal of sacrifice of time and money, that becomes a sort of uh, personal testament to one's spirit and one's legacy about what this was about. And just too often, unfortunately, that's what the, the crisis of men not being in, in, in the, the lives of their children um, does not offer them. And we have too many men who go to their graves with a whole bunch of um, questions and regret um, and a lot of wounds um, that uh, otherwise, you know, uh, you know, are not addressed. And those are things that, you know, um, I uh, see often as well. 
So I, I know I'm talking a lot. I, I think partly because I'm just tired. Uh, I would love to have uh, any sort of other sort of questions that you have, and, and, and perhaps even just more of a dialogue in the, in the short while we have left. Thank you. I have a theory, if I can have a theory, about <laughs> men and women today. And okay. that is, back in the day, Sunday morning, 8 o'clock, Mama and Daddy got the kids up, fed them bacon and eggs or whatever was in the house, mm. went to Sunday school, mm. sat through church. Even if you fell asleep, you were there. Mm. You were surrounded by uh, units of people with, with the same kinds of principles and values. Mm. And you lived that lifestyle inside the church and outside the mm. church mm. and to this day I have a very clear vision of mm. what is right and what is wrong and mm. I am not going to put a picture in front of your face of people fighting and tell you oh no we're just kissing each other or mm. hugging each other and I think over time and this is Dr. I talking. Over time, we have allowed right and wrong and good and bad and the truth and a lie to merge. Now, what do you say about that? I, I believe there's some wisdom in there. And, and if, if you don't mind me just to, to abstract, for example, just uh, religiosity or church tradition as an important variable, the other piece that that tradition offered, not just was this sort of exteriority of what you said, but was this sort of interiority of things that, you know, end up getting people through. So themes of, of faith, themes of forgiveness, themes of, of, of grace, of redemption, all those types of teachings that end up being a part of one's internal process. Absent getting those sort of messages early and often, what do people who, you know, it's not a question of if they will go through problems, it's just a question of when. If you don't have any of those sort of teachings in, in you, if you don't have that as, as a part of your sort of um, inner sort of um, spirit as well as the thing that sort of protects you, how do you imagine that people, you know, what, how do you imagine, uh, how do we imagine that people deal with problems when they come? They don't. So if, again, you know, raising children is not, you know, I just went and got my, uh, my uh, beautiful 10-year-old up at, what, 12.45. Uh, you think, for example, I have to have a conversation with her about why she's sleeping so late? Uh, my guess is she was up with her, you know, daughter, my you know, youngest, uh, my oldest daughter is back home from college, so they just hang out a lot. But parenting at its core is about work. Is about suffering, is about processing, is about loving. And if you don't have the patience, don't have the sort of understanding, if you don't have that sort of teaching, the stuff that you were, Dr. I, mentioning to that comes through some specific sort of way, regularly and often, uh, through a community, one is just left uh, to be out in the rain uh, with no sort of protection at all. And so I, I subscribe to your, your, your theory but to my knowledge, I'm saying it, at least clinically, it just uh, harkens to the lack of, you know, we would say coping skills. I would, you know, you're bright and brilliant enough to refer to a larger tradition, which says that we were better prepared to deal with the types of things that allowed us to be 
if not, you know, uh, great parents or good parents, but parents that had some skills to be able to get us through. Uh, and, and oftentimes uh, these days, uh, young folks and even older folks don't have any of that sort of tradition to draw upon. And that's what, uh, in some ways, uh, makes some of this, uh, if not sad, certainly predictable. There's so much that we did not talk about um, today. We didn't talk at length about fathers' importance in their daughters' lives, although we did oh focus a lot on the importance of of sons. We didn't talk a lot about people like, like you shared with us who are now sons, who are adults, who have some past that they might like to forget about their own relationship with their dads. And so still so much untouched. Please tell us once again how someone can get in touch with you if they choose to get counseling and what they can expect when they take that counseling step. Okay. Uh, they can call our offices again at 614-360-9702. At 614-360-9702, they can find us uh, online, Male Behavioral Health, at mbhinc.com. That's mbhinc.com. Um, in terms of what they would expect, uh, they would expect, I believe in this concept and very much promote the idea, um, Dr. Cooper and Dr. Williamson, of clinical justice with uh, African Americans, particularly African American men. And that means, one, appropriate diagnosis. Too often, our people are underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed. The second is uh, disposition, meaning that they are properly uh, referred to the appropriate and least restrictive uh, level of care. Why? Because too often our people are sent to the wrong levels of care and some of the most restrictive uh, levels of care. And the last one is uh, that uh, they would receive appropriate and gender competency treatment. Uh, people who are trained to understand and uh, know some of the cultural issues related to masculinity and mental health and to be able to work effectively and ethically uh, at the same time. Being That's a father is a very special relationship. So please, to our listeners, if there's anything you can do to help improve your relationships as it relates to parenting, as it relates to fathering, as it relates to being a father to someone who needs that, as it relates to improving whatever's still in, in your psyche, as it relates to your relationship with your father, please make that your Father's Day gift and, and tell people you heard about it on the window. Please take the time to look up Jewel Woods, J-E-W-E. L W O O D S on the internet. This is a bad brother. We so are so grateful that you talked to us this morning. It's a perfect time for us to get to know you. And will you come back and talk to us sometime in the future? I'd be happy to. And I'll, I promise to be a little bit more coherent. It just, uh, we have not had much sleep since. Blessings to you and your family. And yes. And happy Father's Day to you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very, God very bless much. You. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And both. thank you to our audience for joining us this week on The Window. Take care. We'll see you next week when we'll talk about our history. <laughs>